Hello, historians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Firstery, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Give a whoop whoop for your favorite co-host, MC Clap Your Hands. What? What? How's it going? (laughs) It's me, MC Clap Hands. Clap your hands. No, well, oh, we don't really t- t- uh, mention don't my middle, middle name. name. Yeah, or... it's it's so cool. rough man. It's even <laughs> awkward right now bringing it up. Um, how are you doing though today? I'm doing so good. If you guys aren't already following us on social media, what are you doing with your life? You know, so I'm just gonna plug two of our handles right now. So make sure you listen through the end to hear all of our others. So head over to our Instagram. At Women of Her Story Podcast. Because our social media genius, Lauren Farang, is killing it daily over there and other platforms. Um, More on that at the end of the episode. And head over to our Twitter. At the Her Story Pod. For more amazing daily inspo. MC Claphands runs that. I am, Twitter. I, I am I am the operator, the overseer, and another word that begins with an O. Oh. I'm all three. Today's history lesson takes place during the Russian Revolution from the mid late mid to late 1800s into the early 1900s. I, like in so many other episodes, had to stop myself in the research process because I could have made this one a three-part episode. Um, which is super fun. I'm so excited to share this with you guys. You're going to have to bear with my pronunciations because we're in Russia and there's a lot of consonants. So today we're going to talk about Ekaterina Breshko-Breshkovaya, aka Katerina Breshkovakaya, aka Breshkovakaya, aka Breshkovskoy, aka Little grandmother of the revolution, aka Catherine Breshkovaya. Oval team. Oval team. <laughs> that's the third, that's the third O that I'm going to be. So, Oval team. For the sake of not being confusing, I'm gonna be referring to uh Catherine as Catherine for this episode. Please and thank There's you. There's a whole Appreciate lot of names. It, it was so You said weird. like five names and I was like, she's gonna mention one the whole time. Just remember that one. Maybe two when she does something successful and they're like, <laughs> good job, you are this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was really interesting coming across a lot of different spellings, a lot of different first names. It was a lot of hyphenations. History and so has I've... a funny way of remembering people. Yeah, but it also has a funny way of translating names. That's yeah. that's mostly what I found this to be was tra- the translation of her name was a little interesting. Well, you got me hooked. So here we go. Catherine was born on January thirteenth, eighteen forty four, in Vitebsk, Russia, in the Ivanovo village. Okay, Gemini energy. I like it. Already <laughs> off to a good start. <laughs> she had two brothers and two sisters. Her father, Konstantin Mikhailovich Verigo, was a prosperous landowner and retired lieutenant in the Russian Imperial Guards and descended from Polish nobility. And her mother, Olga Ivanovna Verigo, was a graduate of the Smolny Institute, a prestigious girls' school in St. Petersburg, hmm. which was rare for women to be educated highly. So when they were, they were... Um, well thought of, even though they weren't educated past, like, high school. 
Oh. You know? Yeah, okay. Yeah. The family owned serfs and treated them exceptionally well considering the usual treatment of serfs. Sure. During this time, Russia still operated with serfdom. Serfs were is 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 uh, a rough translation of a Russian word that basically meant like unfreed person, but they're a little different than slaves. So serfs were unfree peasants in Tsarist Russia. Unlike slaves, serfs were only legally sold with the land that they were attached to. In most cases, serfs were whipped and exiled for tiny infractions. Their wives and daughters were used as concubines and all kinds of other horrific, inhumane things. It's really gross. Sounds tragic. (laughs) Yes. Interestingly, her parents held liberal views and welcomed the idea of emancipation of the serfs. Oh. Yeah. Catherine, from an early age, was extremely invested and sympathetic to the rural poor and later said to Louise Bryant, quote, When I think back upon my past life, I, first of all, see myself as a tiny five-year-old girl who was suffering all the time, whose heart was breaking for someone else, now for the driver, then again for the chambermaid or the laborer or the oppressed peasant. For at that time, there was still serfdom in Russia. The impression of the grief of the people had entered so deeply into my child's soul that it did not leave me during the whole of my life. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. So she <laughs> suffered her, basically her whole life uh, after seeing that. Yeah. Uh, it's like she, she, PT, from, mild PTSD. From, from being, from the time she was a little girl, existing. she was just like, I need to do something about this. This is not right. She just knew that this was not right. Just one person. Mm-hmm. She would go to the serfs' huts, confide in them, listen to them, eat with them, connect with them. Quote, men would come to the master begging for bread. Women would come weeping, demanding back their children of whom they had been robbed. These things tormented me as a child, pursued me into bed where I would lie awake for hours, unable to sleep, thinking of the horrors that surrounded me. It's tragic for everyone in that situation. Yeah, oh, horrible. Catherine's parents encouraged her to open a peasant school on their estate when she was 17. Well, that's nice. 17? Yeah. I was doing the op. I was hardly getting through community service at 17 (laughs) for high school. She was like, I'm going to open a school. (sighs) She wasn't formally educated, but was homeschooled and was a fervent reader, but took no interest in fiction. So she was like, I'm going to learn about Real things, real people. Not that there's anything bad with fiction. I love fiction. But she mm. was like, this This is, I, I need to educate myself with the people that are around, with the real events happening so that I can do something. Yeah, I feel like if you were reading fiction, you'd have to be like at a good place in your life where you're like, I don't, I don't need these distractions. Like, mm-hmm. Or rather, I need these distractions, so I'm going to take my mind and transport myself mm-hmm. somewhere else, whereas, like, nonfiction is so real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she kind of needed in order to fuel her, mm-hmm. I guess, as we'll see. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, if there is anything good in me, I owe it all to them, in reference to her parents. After a year or so of running the school, she decided to look for more general political solutions to the issue of vast local misery general political <laughs> the school failed as she found trouble motivating the peasants to learn when your problems are immense poverty and mistreatment learning mathematics 
probably feels trivial. Secondary. The, you know, the thing, though, is the way to rise people out of poverty is to educate them. But the problem then becomes it, it's if you've don't have grown the time up. Yeah, if you've work. grown up so long in this in this lifestyle of this is what you do. This is what it is. There's no escaping this. Yes. It's it's such a difficult space to be Waters in. Waters to navigate, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She recalled the time when her mother said, quote, My other children behave like typical children. Katya is like a whirlwind. And her governess would say, Breshkovsky is a spider. Because she was just everywhere putting her hand in all kinds of things as a kid. Spinning webs with her eight legs. <laughs> Furry. <laughs> no. that's, that's such a cool nickname, though. Interesting. She was a spider. Yeah, I love that. I wonder if she's an inspiration for uh, Black Widow. Ooh. <laughs> that would be so cool, but it's definitely not, Mm-mm. but still. No. In 1861, Tsar Alexander II freed the two million serfs with the Emancipation Act. In theory, this is great, but it certainly presented an insane amount of problems. Consider that they and their families have been attached to particular plots of land to serve the upper class and royalty forever. They're emancipated, but they have quite literally never lived anywhere else. They have no literary skills, no experience outside of servitude on this particular plot of land. Catherine recalled, quote, In one village near ours, where the peasants refused to leave their plots, they were drawn up in a long line along the village street. Every tenth man was called out and flogged, and some died. Two weeks later, every fifth man was flogged. Goodness. I heard many heart-rending stories in my little schoolhouse. The peasants would throng to our house day and night. Ugh. Ooh, so sad. But think about it. Like, okay, they're emancipated. They're living technically on someone else's land. So where are they going to go now? What a, yeah. That displaced entirely. And they're, they're like, I'm not going to leave this land. My family and I have lived on this land forever. Like, where do you expect me to go? That czar should have had another plan after um, emancipating people. (laughs) Emancipating people. He should have been like, I'm going to, yeah. After her school failed, she made her way to the capital city of St. Petersburg. On the train, a young prince that just so happened to be a favorite of Tsar Alexander accidentally entered her train compartment. This man was Peter Kropotkin, the man who would turn out to be a well-known anarchist and socialist revolutionary. Oh. Yeah. He shared with her information about the early populists how they had gone to the countryside without the idea of social reconstruction and simply wanted to teach peasants to read, interest them in new ideas, give medical attention, and to help raise them out of their darkness. Kind of sounds like a, talking about like a secondary character in a checkoff play, where it's like the poor person who's like trying to like get themselves out of poverty, or mm-hmm. the impoverished person who's trying to get themselves out of poverty, and then they're being uh, taught by the... Um, by the populace or by, you know, people who are higher up. And mm-hmm. then there's like this whole like yeah. fourth wall breaking mm-hmm. realization that every character has. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It was with these experiences that they were able to then formulate their ideals for a better society. So it didn't start off as this like, we're going to make a better society. It was, let's just go help these people huh. and see what happens. Yeah. And then they were like, what if? Kropotkin introduced her to the radical circles in St. Petersburg and helped to get her a job as a governess. Wow. 
At this time, women were not allowed to attend university classes. So Catherine said, that's fine, I'll find another way. She sat in on illegal women's courses and went to underground political meetings. Catherine said she met young women like herself who, quote, had won their personal freedom, now wanted to make use of it, not for their own personal enjoyment, but to carry to the people the knowledge that has emancipated them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Giving back to the, yeah, you're giving back, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're reciprocating what you learn, then you hope that they inspire, you know, they get inspired. And mm-hmm. that's amazing. I mm-hmm. love that. In 1866, with persuasion from her parents, she moved back to Vitebsk. She worked with the local Zemstvo. What's the Zemstvo? I was going to ask that, yeah. (laughs) Good question. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Zemstvo were provincial elected bodies that at the time were recently established by the central government. They addressed education, medical, and various other needs in the community. Good. Yeah. While working with the Zemstvo, she met a wealthy landowner who shared her views named Nikolai Breshkov-Breshkovsky. The two married in 1869, and together they established a cooperative bank and a peasant agricultural school on his estate. I like that they married because it kind of feels like he was on the same page with her, where Mm -hmm. it's like, you're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to help these people. We're going to get married. Mm -hmm. We're going to be in love. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it is important that we distinguish the difference between reformist and revolutionist ideals. Yes. Reformist advocates for the reform of of a government, Mm -hmm. right? Of a system from within. They say, let's chip away. Revolutionists are basically a person who revolts, who says, we've tried this and nothing is changing. It's like the people from V for Vendetta. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They they went past the reform part and that movie was all revolutionary. Exactly. (laughs) Up until this point, Catherine has been staying true to the reformist ideals, Mm -hmm. working to make changes within the existing system. Sure. In 1871, the government changed, making it difficult for her to stay a reformist. She decided that the only way to bring about a true change was to join the revolutionary cause and bring the change through force. Damn right. Okay. Yeah. She was like, we tried. You're not going to work for me? Then forget it. Yeah. We have to raise not the system for me. up from the with ground. Me. We have to, yeah. You're not going to yeah. work with me? Yeah. Then we have to raise the system from the ground up. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I love that energy. Okay. In 1873, she went to Kiev leaving behind her parents and husband, both physically and politically, because he was like, he he's a reformist. And she was like, so were, so were her parents, right. more or less. Right. They weren't quite active in it, but they weren't against it. Sure. Um, okay. Kind of passive, nice, I guess you could say. They're yeah. wanting to educate, bring up the, the peasants, but they're not going out of their way necessarily they're providing a space anyway and they're so, from an older generation too like uh, even if as long as they share the ideology right. that's at least a good step in the right direction so yeah she she's now left behind the reformist and she's going revolutionist mm-hmm. and they're like Ugh. so at 30 she was one of the oldest revolutionary members in kiev most of them were in their late teens and early 20s and when i was reading some um, articles about that. It made me think of in Captain America, the um, what are they called? With oh the, my gosh! And the it's flag all, smashers. 
and they're Sorry. all they're all, <laughs> so excited and they're all <laughs> and they're all the flag smashers <laughs> and they're all young right yes. they're all young there's a couple who are a little older but you know early, early i mean 30s. i know they're like super soldiers so like different but still you know what i mean i mean they were in their 20s the actors were in their 20s in greece and they were supposed <laughs> to be in high school right kaniki was like 29 yeah yeah <laughs> rizzo was 29 actually yeah in kiev she shared an apartment with her sister olga their apartment became the center for the Kiev Commune. They were influenced by the writings of Alexander Herzen, Peter Lavrov, and Pavel Axelrod, just to name a few. Their other sister, Nadezda, visited but didn't participate in their revolutionary activities. She was like, I'll come hang, but... Uh. <laughs> Olga died shortly after the Commune was established, effectively making Catherine completely cut off from the rest of her family. Oh. Yeah. I didn't see that one coming so yeah, early on. Yeah, I didn't either. That's, um, <laughs> I hope she was able to find some sort of support. Yes and no. Um. Not familial, she, it sounds right. like. She had a lot of support. She had a lot of support in her community. Um, obviously in the, in the, with the rebels that she is aligning herself with, but she's also kind of having to take on sort of like a guiding mother role in this place uh. because she's like, mm, y'all being a little cray. Mm -hmm. We, this is, even though we're revolutionary we got to like, think about this. We have to think this through. Yeah. In order to make money for living expenses, she offered to tutor students to raise money. She taught French at a private girls' school and always tried to add social commentary to the girls' lessons. Yes. Uh, right? Yes. You're like, okay, we're learning this French lesson. In today's French lesson, we're learning about the revolutionary. Can you say revolutionary in French? Perfect. Beat after me. Feminism. That's like, I love that idea. Yeah, that looks yeah. so good. Just I, kind of slipping it in. Yeah, where it's like, yeah, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. When she found that she was unable to teach and continue a life in political activities, like both equally same amount of energy, she did end up abandoning teaching because she was like, where where can I be best served right now? Fair. I'm not doing all the things that I could be doing because I'm teaching. She was still an educator in some sense, mm -hmm. you know, putting, you know, uh, providing knowledge to mm -hmm. the next generation. Absolutely. Um, even if she wasn't a teacher. So right. mm -hmm. it's just a formality. In the fall of 1873, Catherine returned to St. Petersburg. Here, she met members of the Tchaikovsky Circle, not Tchaikovsky with the T spelt differently. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were about to get into classical no. music. They were one of the famous revolutionary groups that had appeared throughout Tsar Alexander's reign. Mm, she helped convince the group that the revolutionary indoctrination of Russian masses never could be successful without basic education first. Ooh, we. That is a stance that she held throughout her life. I mean, I just yeah, got chills fair. saying Like, that. you know, the bare minimum, just like at least like no. Mm -hmm. Like we just need to all know like the same yeah. three things. We just all need to be able to read and on write. On the same page, yeah, exactly. Like, let's yeah. just learn to read and write. Yeah. The reason why the revolution Basic. isn't happening is because people don't know like mm -hmm. fundamentals. That makes and me that's think about um, with the with the um, industrial unions that like they yeah. were being taken advantage of because those factory workers weren't able to read and write. Right. You know, right. like yeah, they were just taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. In early 1874, she gave birth to her son, Nikolai, 
and I know you're doing the math in your head. Catherine had been pregnant with him when she arrived in Kiev. So she was already pregnant when she left. It wasn't like an affair. She ended up leaving him with her sister-in-law and became a full-time revolutionary, not seeing him again until he was 22 years old. She later wrote, quote, I felt that in my child my youth was buried and that when he was taken from my body, the fire of my spirit had gone out with him, but it was not so. I know that I could not be a mother and a revolutionary. Among the women involved in the struggle for freedom in Russia, there were many who chose to be fighters rather than members of the victim's tyranny. Oh, I know. I mean, she's kind of still being like um, a really good mother, yeah. like a maternal figure in a sense, even if she's not there for the child. Right. Like, she's like, I know what the best place for you is going to be is not with me. Yeah, like the world <laughs> needs to change. I can't be a good mom to you because the world is such right. a bad place. I don't place. want you to grow up I in this world do where this. this is a thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm built to like resist the mm-hmm. system. I can't, I, I want to be your mom, but like this yeah. is, this will be a better way to mm-hmm. be a parent for you. Absolutely. As if the world is a better place, which mm-hmm. I, I mean, mm-hmm. Absolutely. shoot, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I agree. In the mid 1870s, she became involved in the famous and highly unusual event of the Russian revolutionary era known as, quote, to the people. Mm. Russian cities were isolated from rural villages. Young rebels had little to no contact with peasants who made up the majority of the Russian population. (sighs) The rebels decided that they should see the Russian people, the Narod, face to face. They wanted to link the urban, educated minority with the vast rural illiterate majority. What Catherine felt was the true heart of Russia. The movement reached its peak in the summer of 1874, a summer known as the, quote, Children's Crusade or the Mad Summer. Oh. Thousands upon thousands of young rebels left their lives, studies, and families in the cities and went out into the peasant population. Some went to simply meet the peasants to observe and understand their circumstances better, and others wanted to recruit them into the revolutionary cause. Catherine had more experience with peasantry. She grew up spending her time when she could with the yeah, with so the I'm peasants sure around. She was able to kind of connect with them mm-hmm. a little bit stronger than maybe she, some of the less educated. She actually acted as a model for the younger revolutionaries. Oh yeah, perfect. Yeah. She helped to prepare them. Mm-hmm. She traveled to workshops. So what they did is they created workshops in various cities and workshops. towns <laughs> in the, in the cities before they went out to the rural areas to teach these city rebels skills that they needed to be able to blend in with village life. <sighs> Things like shoemaking, metalworking, and weaving. From two to three, like learning. From three to four. Well, um, really, because here's the thing. Putting down the... the Is if they stand out, they're going to get arrested. Right. No, of course. They're going to get... The czar's police are going to arrest them if they see these kids standing out. So when Catherine did something, she did it. She disguised herself in peasant clothing, aged her hands and face with acid. That's right acid and left with two other activists. They traveled to villages like Belaziri, Semyela, and Cherkis. Wow. Her approach varied from village to village. 
sometimes talking to the women and men that she met, asking them about their lives and their impression of what their lives meant. Other times, she would set up meetings, mostly with the village men, to discuss the current political and social situations. She would use these meetings to convince them that it was time for a change. If, if anyone's going to know, you know, uh, what it takes to make the change and, you know, the sacrifices that have to come with it, um, it's going to be her. I yeah. mean, you know, just the fact that they had to do the whole, um, you know, they just changed their, their physical appearance. Mm-hmm. That on top of the fact that, you know, she hardly has a connection with her family mm-hmm. um, at this point. It's yeah. like... She's like, well, we're That's, doing it. This is the sac- we're doing You want to see sacrifice for your country? Look at me. Yeah. <laughs> I have acid on my face. Let's do this. Let's rise up. I didn't put acid on my body so you could be on the fence. Yeah. yeah. Pick a side. Exactly. You're going to die soon. <laughs> Unfortunately, this effort was incredibly short-lived, and the summer was considered an overall disaster. The students didn't blend in, so the peasants turned them oh. quickly over to the police. Because if the peasants oh, get caught right. conversing with obvious imposters they're gonna be killed they're just literally gonna be killed yeah yeah in late september Catherine was arrested in varvaska along with hundreds of others oh no as one of the most successful members of the movement she was less impatient more understanding than the young bucks but unfortunately it didn't really matter she was successful in getting through to some people but you know In the end, she was still caught and arrested. Right. I mean, that's it. There's no... She spent 1874 to 1877 in Moscow and St. Petersburg prisons. Oh. In hindsight, her ability to read and write definitely raised suspicions. Quote, in one of the villages, I gave away my last illegal leaflet and then decided to write an appeal to the peasants myself. Stefanovic made three copies of it. In those terribly ignorant times when the only written papers in the villages were the orders issued by the authorities, their faith in a written work was great. All the more so since there was no one in the villages who could write, write or read even moderately well. Yeah. So she kind of... We have to trust her. I mean, she she's writing. Yeah. She's writing, but she's a woman. Get it together, man. <laughs> <laughs> no one else here in this village reads besides our goat. You know that. Catherine was a defendant in what was called the Trial of the 193 that lasted from October 1877 into 1878, into January. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Long trial. She and 36 women were tried for, quote, revolutionary propaganda. She was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years hard labor and exiled to Siberia. They were the first women in Russian history sentenced to hard labor. Honestly, it is it is more unfortunate that because she was so outspoken and people like probably ratted her out that her um her set like those, their sentencing were even more um They were harsher. harsh. I they mean, were making Sib- an example like of them. That's Siberia, what they were doing. That's like that, hard labor as women, you know, for, it was very like, bad. She lived in the Kara Mines for 10 months. Then she was sent to Barguzin. She tried to escape in July 1881, but was caught the following month and given another sentence of hard labor. She spent eight years in Seligansk on the Chinese border. I forget how vast Russia is. I forget that it borders China. Oh. I it's definitely huge. remember that, but... 
That is crazy, though, that it that the mass is, like, a part of Russia's frozen. <laughs> like, oh, it's, like, Siberia, of, and then it's, like... Inhabitable, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she became a well-known international figure when she was interviewed by American journalist George Kennan for his book, Siberia and the Exile System. He said, quote... She was a lady, perhaps 35 years of age. She was actually 41, with a strong, intelligent, but not handsome face, a frank, unreserved manner, and sympathies that seemed to be warm, impulsive, and generous. Her face bore traces of much suffering, and her thick, dark, wavy hair, which had been cut in prison at the mines, was streaked here and there with gray. Almost the last words that she said to me were, quote, Mr. Kennan, we may die in exile, and our children may die in exile, and our children's children may die in exile, but something will come of it at last. Oof. Yeah, I mean, with all the work she's put in, all the lives that were lost, like, the amount of effort, it's just, it can't be, it can't be for naught, you yeah. know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, she's like, like, something has to, we have something to, has to happen. Even if it, like... You know, um, even if it's like a brief moment, something needs to happen. People need to see this inspiration and care. for future generations. Mm-hmm. That's so important, if nothing else. After a period of what is called free exile, where she was allowed to travel Siberia on her own, uh, she was allowed to return home in 1896, eight um, after serving 18 years of hard labor in Siberia. Uh, I I didn't actually realize that people left Siberia, like, alive. Yeah. I've never heard, like, I guess maybe I'm just also not familiar of people being sent to Siberia. Right. And then the, at the right. what mm-hmm. happens after. But mm-hmm. um, 18 years probably changed her. Probably, I, I hope it didn't break her. Oh, her story's nowhere near done. She tried to contact her son, but he didn't really want to be aligned with her revolutionary politics. He was a writer Um, They were kind of at odds in their approach to things. Sure enough, though, she became involved in politics again as soon as possible. Alexander Herzen, an author, believed much like Catherine that any socialist revolution in Russia had to be instigated by the peasantry. Edward Acton, the author of Alexander Herzen and the role of the intellectual revolutionary that was published in 1979, wrote the following, quote, 19th century Russia was overwhelmingly a peasant society, and it was to the peasantry that Herzen looked for revolutionary upheaval and socialist construction. Central to his vision was the existence of the Russian peasant commune. In most parts of the empire, the peasantry lived in small village communes where the land was owned by the commune and was periodically redistributed among individual households along egalitarian lines. In this, he saw the embryo of a socialist society. If the economic burdens of serfdom and state taxation were to be removed and the land of the nobility made over to the communes, to the communes they would develop into flourishing socialist cells. What a beautiful thought. I I really, I would have I would hope that, um, I mean, I know that doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. but I would hope that there were at least some people who um, were able to successfully execute that. Some of them, maybe not so much of the higher ups, but like maybe some people who were in power who actually almost had a change of heart. I Mm -hmm. mean, I doubt, again, they did, but 
um, that is a really, it's a really nice thought, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely true that I think the revolutionaries have to start from the bottom. There's no reason why the one percent or anyone in the middle would. Yeah. I mean, maybe in the middle now because there's such a difference between the upper class and low. And yeah, there's like hardly a middle. The class middle class anymore. and lower class is basically it's like lower middle class and then and then the upper class. Yeah. So there's like two classes now right. in 2021, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but back then. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot more. There yeah. was a lot more in the middle. So, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, yeah. It's a good thought. <laughs> yes. In 1898, Catherine went underground to avoid the Tsarist police. And then in 1901, Catherine, Victor Chernov, Gregory Gershuni, Nikolai Avkenstiev, Alexander Kerensky, and Evno Azef formed the Socialist Revolutionary Party what is described as the heir to the 1860s and 70s populist peasant groups, okay? They toured the world speaking and raising money for the party. The main policy they held was to confiscate all the land to be distributed among the peasants accordingly. They were in favor of establishing a democratically elected constituent assembly as well as maximum eight-hour workdays for factory workers. I'm like, why would people be mad about this? Yeah. In 1902, Catherine founded the Peasants' Union at Saratov, the auxiliary to the main SR party. A year later, she fled to Romania to once again escape the Tsarist police. Oh, damn. <laughs> She's like, oh, whoops. They were on her. Yeah, they. she, she was hot on I their mean, list. She was a vocal figure. Mm-hmm. I guess anyone that was anti-government, she, mm-hmm. they were like, no, put yeah. that out. Catherine actually went to the United States to raise money for the party and raise general awareness of the revolutionary cause in Russia. There was a huge boost in interest when the Russian police killed hundreds of peaceful demonstrators in front of the Tsar's Winter Palace in January of 1905, now known as Bloody Sunday. Yes. She was able to raise 40,000 francs for the SR party. And my calculations might be wrong, but that's about 300,000 today. Which is a fair she, amount of money. That, that's incredible. Especially for one person to bring in. I mean, and that's before Kickstarter or Indiegogo. <laughs> yeah, incredible. that's just her hitting the ground yeah. and making contacts. In the fall of 1905, she returned to Russia. In 1907, she was, drumroll please, arrested again. <clears throat> oh. She was jailed in St. Petersburg's Peter and Paul Fortress for two years. Peter and Paul. She was tried in 1910 as a revolutionary and sentenced to be exiled to Siberia for life. Oh. Starting in the town of Kerensk on the Lena River at 65 years old. Wow. Yeah. She met Alexander Kerensky, a young lawyer who ended up playing a vital role in Russian politics and Catherine's political life. Catherine tried to escape in November of 1913. I'm just like, at that point, she's 68 years old, like trying to escape. Like, girl. That's incredible. Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful. While her contacts in the United States pressured the government to release her, she remained in exile for four years in several various towns. She was released after the overthrow of Nicholas II. Ooh. Yes. He abdicated his throne on March 15th, 1917, as the Romanov dynasty was overthrown. Yes. The royal family was arrested by the Bolsheviks, 
and they were, um, and the royal family was held in seclusion. Yeah, Bolshevik Revolution. And on July 17th, 1918, the Bolsheviks murdered him, his family, and all of their closest retainers. So, score one for the people. (laughs) When Catherine arrived back in St. Petersburg, she loudly supported the provisional government that had arisen after the aftermath. Two members of the SR were involved closely, Alexander Kerensky, the Minister of Justice, and Viktor Chernov, the Minister of Agriculture. The new government ordered the release of all political prisoners that had been held in Tsarist jails. Excellent. During World War I, she supported the war efforts and Kerensky. During this time, the SR party experienced a major party split, and Catherine's stance put her more on the right side than the left. As she took an interest in women's issues, she supported the war and women's issues with her support of the formation of women's battalions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I'm, I'm in favor of what we're doing here. I'm just going to need uh, Let's get some ladies on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She actually helped to set up a publishing house in Moscow titled Zemilia e. Volia. The publishing house was involved in the SR Society for the Distribution of Literature. So she's still holding true to her initial stance of we have to educate people. We have to educate people. You can't have a thriving society for everyone without (laughs) basic education. Mm -hmm. Now, Catherine's ties with the American fundraisers from years prior ended up being used against her. Claims were made that she accepted money for the party on the condition that she continued to support the cause of war and to maintain reformist, not revolutionary, positions. Oh. To her critics, it appeared that she was working for American interests, and those accusations were flimsy at best. It was more that her interests coincided with the Americans, and her interests were not dictated by them. She's like, I support this because X, Y, Z. You guys do too. Give us money. They supported me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, why am I going to... Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? You mm-hmm. didn't give me money. Yeah. Where it, were you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who are you? <laughs> in July of 1917, riots in the capital known as July Days shifted the provisional government. Alexander Kerensky became prime minister and invited Catherine to become an advisor. Journalist Louise Bryant interviewed her in her book uh, called Six Months in Russia and later wrote this of her experience. I saw Babushka a good many times after that and found why she lived in this back room on the top floor of the Winter Palace. First, it was because she chose to live there. They had offered her the choice of the beautiful apartments and she had refused anything but this simple room. She insisted on having her bed and all her belongings crammed into the tiny place and ate all her meals there. I don't know whether it was her long years in prison that made her assume this peculiar attitude or if it was just because she was a simple woman and very close to the people. I think she was probably like, I don't feel like I should be here. Yeah, she was very humbled. I'm sure, even, I'm sure she was humble before she even got sent to uh, Siberia the first time. Mm-hmm. And then just being in those tech quarters just what made a her sentence. be like, I don't need anything more than like a, you know, a four by four. Like, yeah. I don't need, I need like, and give me a closet space. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. I don't even need that much. Yeah. Like, I'm sure after enduring 
uh, her circumstances and seeing other people struggle, she was like, this is, mm-hmm. let me, I can do my job here. Fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. She mentioned that she was looking forward to the elections for the Constituent Assembly. She believed a victory for the Socialist Revolutionary Party, namely Alexander Kerensky, would be Russia's first president. The Constituent Assembly was overthrown by the Bolsheviks on October 24, 1917, and Lenin gave instructions for the elections to assemble. The election took place from November 25th to December 9th. 36 million ballots were cast in parts of the country that were, quote, normal enough to hold elections. Hmm. Most of, I couldn't find, I tried to look up more of what that meant and I couldn't find, I think it meant like there hasn't been an uprising in this space and people can read and write maybe, Mm. but I'm not sure. Uh Or they kind of know what's going on. Um, Most of the large populations of voting were conducted under Bolshevik auspices and 27 million of the 36 million votes went to other parties. Wow. 703 candidates were elected to the Constituent Assembly in November of 1917. Socialist revolutionaries, 299. Bolsheviks, 168. Mensheviks, 18. And Constitutional Democratic Party, 17. David Shubb said, quote, the Russian people in the freest election in modern history voted for moderate socialism and against the bourgeoisie. The people yeah. have spoken. Lenin was mad. Yeah, I'm sure. He was mad. He had hoped that the election would legitimize the October Revolution. When the government officially <sighs> opened on January 5th, 1918, Viktor Chernov was elected president. Quote, without Chernov, the SR party would not have existed any more than the Bolshevik party without Lenin, inasmuch as no serious political organization can take shape around an intellectual vacuum. But Chernov, unlike Lenin, only performed half the work in the SR party. During the period of pre-revolutionary conspiracy, he was not the party organizing center, And in the broad area of the revolution, in spite of his vast authority amongst the SRs, Chernov proved bankrupt as a political leader in a revolutionary situation. He proved inwardly feeble and outwardly unattractive, disagreeable, and ridiculous. Oh. Somebody said, ooh, nope. Yeah. The assembly refused to support the program of the new Soviet government, and the Bolsheviks left in protest. Not very happy about that. Nope. Lenin announced that the Constituent Assembly had been dissolved. Oh. All opposing political groups were banned from Russia, including the Socialist Revolutionaries, the Mensheviks, and Constitutional Democratic Party. So we'll do one Democratic voting and then no more. No, he said, and it didn't go my way. So no more. So nope. Nope, nope. Catherine was angry. And she actually ended up kind of leaving politics at this point. Also, she's 70 plus old. at this story. Like, not <laughs> yeah. to say that you can't, but like she was in but Siberia. She, she got sent to Siberia yeah. twice. Like, yeah. I don't even think I'd have a thought process about politics after that. But she did end her political career as an avid anti-Bolshevik. She decided to live in the Republic of Czechoslovakia, effectively living in a self-imposed exile. The area was an impoverished territory under Russian rule until the Bolshevik government turned it over to the Republic of Czechoslovakia because they had just been ignoring it, basically. They were like, we don't. 
care about this. Yeah. <laughs> Here, she actually founded a Russian language school in Ruthenia. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. You know, she's always doing stuff even yeah. after. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine retired from public life for good in early 1934, following 10 years of poor health. Probably, you know, because like we've been saying, she spent most of her life in Siberia in exile. It was like, I don't know, Probably whatever. like a quarter Just of her so life in exile. Just yeah. in really difficult conditions. She spent her last months on a farm outside of Prague where she was cared for by Russian emigres. She died there on September 12th, 1934 at the age of 90. Wow. Catherine is the only Russian revolutionist whose adulthood spanned the entire revolutionary period, the early 1860s to 1918. And she lived to be 90. And her whole life was dedicated entirely to the welfare of the peasants. And she was born into aristocracy and could have so easily just dissolved into that life and never or just done the the bare minimum you know sure. and she did so much and it was interesting you guys know i like to end with a quote and it was actually like really hard for me to find any quotes of hers because i'm sure they've just been all erased yeah. so what i could find were things that had been published in other people's work you know, all the quotes were things that Interviews were luckily that, mm -hmm, that mm. were luckily cemented into someone else's. Um, it was and it was not from Russian right journalists. Like that, uh, it was all American journalists, yeah, mm -hmm. um, Canadian, like all these other international. Yeah, because mm -hmm, so I didn't get to close with a quote today, but I figured we would just kind of do a little brief. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I... I'm, Can you see why I was like, I could keep researching this and go, I had to stop myself. I was like, no, no, you're getting too in it. And here's the thing. Um, Vera Figner was brought up a lot in my research because she, at this same time, was also part of a revolutionist party doing crazy stuff. She was plotting the, the assassination of Alexander. Yeah. She was like in that lane. And so it was just so interesting to look at, wow, these two incredibly, like... Strong, strong, strong passionate... Strong like, you have to... Women you... were existing at the same... Now, I couldn't find that they ever worked together across paths in that way. Russia's big. But she... Vera was born just a few years after Catherine. Mm. And they were, they were basically, like... Running, yeah. across, like, a parallel lane to each other. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all, I think it's, it, there's something to be said about, you know, if you're like, if, like we're born now. So we have the privilege of looking back in history and being like, these were good, influential people. I want to um, aspire to be like them. Mm. Whereas, you know, early 1900s, late 1800s, there weren't as many role models who were both like public figures mm -hmm. who were readily identifiable, who weren't mm. slandered or arrested because mm -hmm. they like opposed uh, political yeah. parties mm -hmm. or ideologies. So, you know, for her to at least, th you know, it, not for nothing, she was born in the aristocracy. So she used that, you know, that little bit of like knowledge, she... insight and privilege mm. and kind of uh, and then did not have that privilege anymore. Ran, ran in the opposite direction with it. She said, mm. this is how these people live. Wow. Look at how the rest of the people need help. That's something that needs to be talked yeah. about and, like, you know, fixed. Mm. Um, so I think 
being born of being born in aristocracy gave in, in that aristocracy gave her at least the privilege of the lens to know because if you're if you like if you're poor you and need someone on the other side who's saying come with me let me yeah. educate you let me help you do this for yourself and if you live in a podunk village how like how are you gonna know that like if no one know, else can read and write except for the police how are you gonna know that the one percent's <laughs> really taking advantage of you if all you know is the goat like you know yeah. like your th- your your five your tasks a day and, your family like you were worried flogged, about your you kids were, getting stolen yeah, yeah you know whether like, you want to be or not mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like some you know th- I, like i said before there's a lot to be said about uh, you know, kind of being the first one or the only one, in this case, being the only woman to kind of witness the revolution. Oh, the whole um, start to finish. Not even know... just the only woman, the only revolutionist. Right, who wasn't start killed off. Because I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of revolution, you know, male revolutionaries. It's not their story. But they were probably killed off because, you know, they were probably thought mm-hmm. to be, like, physical threats, even if they weren't, like, yeah. smart. Well, she was good yeah. at escaping the the like, hiding from the SARS police. Like, I think had she been caught, they would have absolutely just killed her. And just, nobody would have thought twice. But yeah. she was able to... Outwit. I think she had enough allies mm-hmm. to that could warn her to say, you gotta you gotta go underground. Yeah. You gotta go underground. They're, mm-hmm. like, they're on to you. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible Epic woman, story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, historians, for coming back and sticking through to the end. I know this was a longer run. Subscribe, follow, tell the pigeons in your neighborhood. <laughs> Come back this Friday for an interview with singer-songwriter Lily Rocklin. In this interview, Lily shares with us why she left France to make music in New York City, what the creative process has looked like during the pandemic, and what's coming next for her. Uh, shouts out Astoria Queens. Yeah. Because, you know, um, got to bring it back in some form. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very excited for that. It's good. Follow us on the social media. TikTok. At Her Story Podcast. Facebook. Women of Her Story. Instagram. Women of Her Story Podcast. Twitter. The Her Story Pod. And visit our website. Ofherstory.com. Amazing. Until Friday, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of. Put on sunscreen, get a vaccine. Happy Mother's Day. But, uh, hi, moms. Oh, yeah. Happy Mother's Day. I should have said that Happy beginning. Mother's Day to, uh, yeah, to everyone who celebrates and yeah. to everyone who doesn't um, celebrate. Yeah. Or just have a good day. Yeah.